well done. Thank you. I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you have them with, with you, and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 11. Acts chapter 11 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. While you're turning to Acts 11, you'll find Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts right there. Uh, it's towards the end of the entire Bible, but right uh, after the Gospels. And uh, while you're turning there, you'd be happy to know that uh, my Bible is inflated to the proper pressure for today. So it's a regulation sermon uh, will be delivered this morning. Second thing that I want you to know is that uh, I will be out of town this week. Uh, Jim Ayers from Lancaster Bible College will be speaking next Sunday morning. He's going to do a fine job opening up to us a passage uh, from the book of Luke. He'll also be teaching the adult Sunday school class. He's going to talk about um, some issues related to family based on the life of David in the Old Testament. So um, it will be a good Sunday for you uh, next week with, with Dr. Ayers. Um, my sister is being inducted into the Athletic Hall of Fame at her university. So next weekend, uh, all the divinities will be in Ohio to uh, join in that celebration. So, but you'll be in good hands. Now, Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Uh, last Friday night, I uh, spent some time in a hair salon, which was a somewhat unfamiliar experience for me. But the reason that I had to go was because uh, Kathy was home ill, and I took uh, Claire to get her hair cut. Uh, it was, for reasons that should be obvious, like stepping back in time. Um, and as I sat there, and uh, while Claire was getting her hair cut, I remembered an experience that I used to have when I used to get my hair cut in beautiful downtown Perry, New York, at a salon called His and Hers, an establishment run by two uh, sisters. Now, you all look incredulous. I did have hair at one point in time, all right? It was a necessary investment. Um, I would go down there and I would get my hair cut and uh, Lisa would comb it and style it with some sort of product and uh, I left looking not too bad. She didn't have a lot to work with, but it didn't look too bad. And then 
the problem was that the next morning I could never replicate what she had done. Could never make it look that good. And I was always disappointed. Lots of you know what that disappointment is like. If, if you want to experience some of it, um, you should sometime just for fun Google Pinterest fails. Now, Pinterest, of course, is that website online where people uh, compulsively spend hours thinking they're actually accomplishing something when they're not really. But on Pinterest, they have all kinds of ideas for crafts and recipes and home organization techniques. And, and um, you should there's collections on the Internet of places where people have tried what they saw at Pinterest and it failed miserably, hence the title Pinterest Fails. So you might, for example, go and there'll be two pictures on a Pinterest fail website. One side of the picture will be what was originally on Pinterest, a beautiful, let's say, a birthday cake. It was, it was a birthday cake for a little girl, and it's Elsa from the movie Frozen, and it just is a perfect replication of Elsa. It's beautiful. It would make any eight-year-old girl cry when she sees it at her birthday. And then right next to it is a cake, oh, a cake that looks like the love child of Jabba the Hutt and Cruella DeVille. It's just not the same. It's just not the same. It was a fail. There's the picture. I should be able to make it look good. I can't. Which oh, is one more illustration of this concept. Have you ever bought anything? I, this happened to me once. I bought a tent. You buy the tent and it comes in a box and you open the box and you start to pull it out and you think... I hope everything is okay with this tent because there is no way in this world I'm going to get this tent back in this box like it just has come out. Whoever folded it was so perfect at it that I'm never going to get it back in there like the manufacturer did. When you can't do it right, when you can't make it look like the picture, it's disappointing. Now, I mention those things uh, because we just read a passage of Scripture that's meant to guard us against one of the incorrect ways you might be tempted to read the book of Acts. In fact, it's the discouraging way to read the book of Acts. Sometimes we read the book of Acts and we look at it and we say, oh, look at these people, these Christians, this church. It's amazing. Look what they do. Look how they love one another and they care for one another. We are never in our church going to be able to be like that. We're, we're never going to, to be able to fold the tent like they did in Acts. In comparison to this, we're always going to look like the Jabba the Hutt, Cruella DeVille, Devil Baby. Look, look at their unity and their passion and their courage and their commitment to the mission and their dependence on the Holy Spirit. We're, we're never going to be able to do that. I want to suggest to you that that's the wrong way to read the book of Acts, and this passage is a passage that's meant to show us that that's a wrong way to read the book of Acts. Uh, This is about the formation of a new congregation, a new congregation in the city of Antioch. Antioch is about 310 miles north of Jerusalem, and this is the church that's going to become the new headquarters for the worldwide mission of the church. Let's trace the story again in the book of Acts, shall we? Acts 1.8, Jesus says, When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth, to the ends of the earth. And the first several chapters of the book of Acts, headquartered in Jerusalem, are about that ministry in Jerusalem and Judea, and then in Acts 8 to Samaria. And now we're getting ready, after several weeks and scenes of preparation, we are getting ready for the mission to the ends of the earth. And the headquarters for this mission is not going to be Jerusalem, it's going to be Antioch. 
And this passage teaches us about how this church was settled and established and how this church grew through the work of God himself. It wasn't dependent on the apostles. It wasn't independent of the apostles, but but God formed this church without their necessary involvement. God can do that. God can create this sort of church by the Holy Spirit among a local group of people. I want to encourage you this morning. I want to encourage you this morning that, that we don't read the book of Acts just for nostalgia. We don't read the book of Acts just with wistfulness about what God maybe could have done at one point in time, but nowhere here. We don't read the book of Acts like a romance novel. We don't read it with, with the idea that this is some sort of unattainable fantasy. We don't read it and say, oh, I wish you know, uh, my husband were as handsome as this man in this book, or I wish he was as romantic as this, and, and I'm stuck with the schlubfest that I married. But oh, this, oh, this. That's not the way we read the book of Acts. Look what God can do here. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, um, this passage will perhaps be a bit strange. We're very happy that that you're here. Um, If nothing else, reading through this will help you understand what kind of church we want to be, where we want to be, what our earnest hope and expectation that God would cultivate in us is. And actually, I without apology, say that if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, this is what we want to be, and we want you to join us in being this way. Now, my Bible divides Acts 11, 19 through 30 into four paragraphs, and it does so helpfully. Uh, whoever formatted this, uh, this, these words was aware, I think, of the flow of the passage. Each paragraph provides for us some signs of the health of this congregation. They're a little bit different than the marks of the church that we saw in Jerusalem, but there's overlap, and they represent here what God is doing in this church, and I want to look at them uh, together this morning. So let's move through this passage that way. The first uh, element we see here in verses 19 through 21 is faithful evangelism, faithful evangelism. Now, I know the word evangelism makes some of you nervous, but there is no better word to describe these verses than that. Let's trace the story, shall we? Verse 19 again says, Those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Now, verse 19 actually takes us back to chapter 8. So flip over with me back to chapter 8, if you would, and I want to look at verse, the first four verses, uh, first three verses of chapter 8. Now, uh, there was persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed. And here, verse eight is, or chapter 8 is where that happened. Actually, chapter 7, he's martyred. And then chapter 8, verse 1, Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So chapter 8 now traces Philip, and Philip's going to go to Samaria. Now in chapter 11, we pick it back up at that time with some other people who don't go to Samaria like Philip. They go instead to these three areas, Phoenicia, 
which is uh, just north of Palestine in, in modern-day Lebanon. And it's Lebanon, not Lebanon. This is Lebanon. It's a different place. They don't make bologna there in that Lebanon. That's what, I love living in Lancaster County. There's nowhere else in the world that you would have to say that other than here, that there's a difference between Lebanon and Lebanon. It's great. Phoenicia, Cyprus, that island in the Mediterranean, and Antioch, the city that we're thinking about. Now, the text says, in keeping with their tradition of preaching to the Jews first, and only, actually, that's what they do. They, they, they talk about the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, to the Jews of Antioch. But, verse 20, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also. Cyprus, again, that island in the Mediterranean, Cyrene. Cyrene is the area of North Africa, modern-day Libya. Do you remember the man who carried Jesus' cross? His name was Simon of Cyrene. He, that's the same region he's from. And they go and they speak to Greeks also. Now, who are they talking to and who are they talking about? There's some, some questions about that. Um, perhaps... Some people think that these are probably Greeks or non-Jews like Cornelius. You know, Cornelius, the man who believed the Old Testament was God's word, and he was interested in following God, and he was ready to hear about the Messiah. Uh, God-fearers, maybe. Maybe some Gentiles who had been coming and sitting in the back of the synagogue and watching the, the worship that was taking up. People who are interested. The reason that some people think that is because Acts 13... Paul, Saul, is going to take the gospel to completely disinterested, uninvolved Gentiles. Here, though, maybe they're, they're people who are, want to know. Regardless, we have here this formation of this new congregation in this new city, Antioch. It's got Jews and Gentiles in it. Antioch, at this point in time, is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It's a big town, 500,000 people. Rome is number one, Alexandria is number two, Antioch is number three. And Antioch was a trading center for the, the, the empire uh, in, in the, uh, to, to its, its west. And, and people from the east had come to Antioch. And uh, so Antioch was filled with Gentiles and Jews and Greeks and Romans. And there's even uh, records of ancient Chinese people being in the city of Antioch. It was a cosmopolitan city. It was also a very religious city. In fact, very near the, the downtown area of Antioch, there were two large temples uh, and worshiping the gods and goddesses of love. So there was a lot of prostitution involved in the worship there. It was a morally lax cosmopolitan, wealthy, important city. And here's the new headquarters for the mission. And here's this new church. Now I want to point out to you two things that are in these verses about this mission or what's happening here. First of all, I want you to notice that this is a story about anonymous evangelists. Anonymous evangelists. There's no names here in this passage. There's no apostles that are involved in this story. This is just normal, regular ordinary people. What made the difference, though, was verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them. Look what God can do. Look what God can do through a bunch of no names. Look what God can do, and he doesn't need apostles to do it, but he can do this. He can do this in people who are not first-generation eyewitnesses to the resurrected Lord. 
These are people who, some of whom certainly had heard about Jesus from people who saw him or heard about Jesus from people who heard about Jesus from people who saw him. Look what God can do through these just regular, ordinary people who are committed to representing Christ. In fact, they represent him so much that it's in this city that they start calling them Christians. Little Christ. They talk about him all the time, those Christians. Anonymous evangelists. When I was uh, preparing my annual report, uh, maybe some of you uh, read it, I was thinking about um, one of the, the funerals and memorial services that we hosted this year at Grace. And uh, the church was full. It was packed with people. And my guess is that 60 or 70% of them uh, were new to our church, and many of them were unfamiliar with the Bible's message about Jesus. And, and we hosted them here in our building. This is what our building was used for on that one day. And they heard about Jesus, which is a tremendous privilege for us. I'm not sure if you think about this. I, I don't know if you think about this when you put money in the offering. Or um, uh, when, you, when you put money in the offering, you're, you're giving money to keep the lights on and put oil in the fuel tank. Or you give money so that the carpets can be cleaned. Or... I'm not sure if you think about when you bake a cake uh, for a funeral luncheon or you get table decorations. I'm not sure if you think about the fact that those sacrifices and that work that you do enable us to open the doors of our church so that 120, 150 people who may have never heard about Jesus could come in a room and hear about him. What, you do all that work anonymously, but it's part of a church body that cares about faithfully representing Jesus. Now, the second thing to notice here in this passage about them is they're not just anonymous uh, evangelists, but I wonder if you notice here that the good news is about the Lord Jesus. Oh, that's easy to roll over in this passage. Uh, the text, verse 20, it says, they were telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Now, the reason I mentioned that phrase and the reason that's here and significantly in the city of Antioch is remember, Antioch was a very religious place. And among the, the large temples that they have, they would also have mystery religions, ancient mystery religions. We don't know very much about them. I don't know very much about them. Um, but they were associations and everybody knew about them. But the mystery religions were very secretive in their worship rites, kind of like the Masons. We know about the Masons, and, and they're very secretive as you um, go higher and higher up in their hierarchy. There were secret mystery religions, and one of the things that the ancient mystery religions had in common is that they were men and women in them who were looking, they were hoping for someone to come who would be an ultimate cosmic Lord who could be their Savior. Oh, a deliverer who would come with power and authority to rescue them from life in this broken world. And so this message that this, this church, they preached, what did they preach about? The Lord, the one who's come with ultimate cosmic power, Jesus, whose name means God saves. This reminds me of something that I, I've heard Tim Keller say a number of times, that, that this search, that those ancient mystery religions, this search for a savior that they had, hasn't really gone away. In fact, everyone in some ways is looking for a savior. Someone who will show them the way out of the unhappiness, of the brokenness that we encounter in life. And you look for a savior in all kinds of ways. Uh, some people want a spouse who will save them. 
Oh, if I just had a husband or if I just had a wife who would fulfill me, who would uh, build their life around me, who would love me for who I am and who will rescue me from the brokenness of my loneliness. Some people think that, that their occupation will save them. Someday I'm going to be this and it's going to rescue me from all the, the financial pressure I feel and it's going to rescue me from the uselessness that I feel. I, I want this job. I want this degree and it's going to save me from... Feeling silly, stupid, useless. Maybe you hope sports will save you. It's the savior of a lot of people, they imagine. Um, this week while we were preparing for Man U, we were going to spend some time uh, during our Man U trivia doing famous quotes from television shows and movies. And I was doing some research on that bastion of truth, Wikipedia. And uh, there was a, a quote that I remember watching reruns when I was a little kid from television. It was the word dynamite. Do you remember that? Dynamite. If you don't, that's probably a credit to your character. So I'll just say that. Uh, dynamite was a, uh, the catchphrase of a man who, uh, on television, a character, J.J. Evans. J.J. Evans and his family uh, lived in, a pro- in the projects uh, of New York City. They were poor, and the show was often about how they were struggling to get enough money to survive. At the end of the show, the end of the series, after it was on for a long time, um, finally J.J. gets his big break as an artist. But the chief happiness that comes from this family is the fact that J.J.'s sister, Thelma, marries somebody who gets signed to a contract with the Chicago Bears. And because he has his football contract, they can move out. And they're going to be wealthy and happy, and sports has saved them. The, the greatest uh, temptation that most of us face is, is to be our own savior. If I am just smart enough, or good-looking enough, or rich enough, or strong enough, or successful enough, I can make this work. I can save myself. I can undo the unhappiness and the brokenness that I have encountered in life so far. I have a friend, she's not a part of this uh, congregation, but when she was a little girl, she experienced repeated, constant um, sexual abuse. One of the things that she does to compensate for that at this point in time is that she imposes on her world control. She's in control of her house, she's in control of her schedule, she's in control of her habits, she's in control of her money, she exercises fierce protective control. She's, she's acting as her own savior. If I can control everything, I can protect myself. It's deeply embedded, it's difficult to see, it's not easily dismissed, but she's living out this, I'm going to be my own savior. In contrast to that, the, the Christians in Antioch are talking about the Lord Jesus. The Bible tells us when, when we're on this search to be our own Savior or for a Savior, the Bible tells us why the world is broken. It's, it's broken because of our own alienation from God, our own sin. We are originally created to know and love and obey and serve our Creator God, but instead we have chosen our own way. A few years ago, Nicholas Cage provided the voice uh, for a, 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 the father in a movie uh, that's called The Croods. Now, The Croods is uh, are, are cavemen. Don't get your anthropological, geological history from cartoons, okay? That's just all that should be said about that. But The, the, the Croods 
live in a dark, dusty, hard, gray cave. And the reason that they live in this cave is because the father is afraid. He's afraid of what is outside the cave. He's afraid that it's going to be dangerous and harmful and hurtful. So that's where they stay. And no one can go out of the cave because it's too dangerous out there. All of a sudden, though, an earthquake strikes and the family has to leave the cave. And what do they discover outside? They discover sunlight and flowers and feathers and beauty and fresh air and flowing water and delicious food. And, well, it's still dangerous. It's still, there's risk involved, but it's so much better outside the cave. Because sometimes we are foolish enough. This is the way we normally think. We think that following God and living in the world he made in obedience to him is like moving out of the lush forest and into a cave. When in fact, just the opposite is true. God has created for us this world that is beautiful and lush and healthy and, and, and delicious, and we have run from him, and we have put ourselves in our own self-imposed, dark, gray, stony, dusty cave of darkness. We sang this morning, Jesus sought me when I was a stranger wandering from the fold of God. It's a sweet words. The Lord Jesus has come and he lived life in full color with a, with a perfect relationship with his father. And he, he died the death that we deserved. When the gospel writers describe it as he hung there, uh, he, he Suffering for our sin, not for his own, the world itself was darkened. It's what we have introduced into this world, this darkness. He died and he rose again. He ascended into heaven and he is Lord of all. And then the text describes our response to him. What should we do with him? We believe and turn to the Lord. We trust in Him as our Savior. We turn from the mess that we have made and we trust in Him. I want you, Lord Jesus, and your forgiveness, your rescue. I don't want the world that I'm trying to create myself. Friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, this this invitation stands for you to turn and trust in Him. And I would plead with you to take it. This, This book describes a church that is faithfully engaged in the work of trumpeting Jesus. And the invitation still stands to everyone. This is a church that's filled with faithful evangelists. Now, second here, notice this church is also filled with an encouraging leader or encouraging leaders, actually. Now, the believers in Antioch hear what's happening, or the believers in Jerusalem hear what's happening in Antioch, so they send Barnabas up. Now, this is the second time in the text we've seen Barnabas. He'll remain here for a few uh, chapters before uh, sliding off the pages again. William Barclay said that Barnabas is the man with the biggest heart in the New Testament. A nice uh, description. What he does here actually provides a wonderful curriculum for people who are training for pastoral ministry. If you want to be an elder, if you want to be a pastor, notice what Barnabas does and do that. All right. He arrives, the text says, he sees the grace of God. He sees the evident work that God is doing among the people. He rejoices in it, and then he encourages them. And he encourages them in two very important ways. He encourages them to, be, to persevere and to be wholehearted. Remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Persevere in this wholeheartedly. 
Uh, every church, every church needs men and women like this. I, I appreciate the honesty of this text. Do you appreciate the honesty of this text? I appreciate the fact that uh, Barnabas is willing in the church, and, and at, it, Luke admits this, to face head-on two temptations that we all face. The temptation to give up and the temptation to be half-hearted in how we follow Christ. You ever face those temptations? Sometimes people think that they're substandard Christians or they're, they're something's wrong, something is wrong with them if they're ever tempted to just quit or tempted to be half-hearted. In fears, it appears, I think, in this passage quite normal. It's part of Barnabas' ministry to the brothers and sisters. Don't quit, he says. Don't shrink back. Don't play with Jesus. Don't merely think of him as a slice of your life, as a part of your life that you think about on Sundays and when your life is hard. Don't drift away. Don't be satisfied with the half-hearted patterns that you fall into. Don't quit. Don't shrink back. Today we're going we're gonna to vote to affirm uh, new elders. Men, take this as a responsibility. The church has appointed or is appointing you to this task to see what God is doing here, to rejoice in what God is doing, and to strategize about how you might encourage us further to persevere, to give Jesus everything that we have. I know somebody who is, who is very good at this, who is very good about seeing evidence of God's grace and encouraging and rejoicing and encouraging over it. That person that I know is actually my father. It's one of his key parenting strategies. I hope if you have kids, it's one of your key parenting strategies. I can remember uh, several times, various times in my life, when my father very specifically has pointed out evidence of God's grace that he's seen in me or in my wife or in my kids, and he rejoices over them with us. Whenever we drop my kids off at, at my parents' house, uh, they stay there sometimes a few hours or, or uh, an occasion, a couple days. So we ask when, when we pick them up, how were they? Inevitably, the answer from my father is, oh, they were great. And usually what happens uh, a few hours, maybe the next day, I'll receive an email message from my dad and it'll say, Here's what I saw. Luke did this, and it was great. And Claire did this, and it was great. And boy, Jenna, she just is so... Now, if we want to know the truth of what happened over the weekend, we ask my mother. (laughs) And usually, about 75% of the time, her answer is, you know this, right? What happens at grandma's stays at grandma's. That's usually her answer. Seeing the grace of God, rejoicing over the grace of God, Encouraging people at what you see God doing. I wonder how active you are in this. It's so much easier to find things to complain about. Things that aren't right. Things that need to be fixed. Or areas where God needs to be more gracious. Now, uh, third here. Verses 25 and 26. Let's see what else we see besides encouraging leaders. Consistent gathering. Consistent gathering. This is the scene where, uh, where Saul re-enters the picture. We should we just trace the story for a minute. Verse 25, I think what happens is 
The church is growing and Barnabas needs some help. So he goes to Tarsus and he looks for Saul. Remember, seven or eight years ago, before Acts 11, seven or eight years, it's only been a chapter and a half in the Bible, but it was seven or eight years, they had sent Saul, the new believer, from Jerusalem and they sent him home because he was getting himself into so much trouble. Saul, go home. And, and Saul had been traveling and doing ministry up there for seven or eight years. And Barnabas goes and gets him and brings him back down into Antioch. And the text says... For a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church. What did they do when they met together? The things the church does when they meet together. They pray, they worship, they teach the Bible, they celebrate the Lord's Supper. And then, too, it says he taught great numbers of people inside and outside the church. One of the ways that these brothers and sisters persevered is that they kept meeting together. Consistently, diligently, faithfully. Is a sign of a health of the body of believers. They, they don't stop with one another. I've noticed a pattern in my life in recent months. It's not a pattern that I am proud of. Um, most of you know Kathy's a nurse. She works at Lancaster General Hospital. She works a second shift two or three days a week. And uh, it's a good schedule for our family. But uh, at the end of December, she worked several days in a row and she did that because she had been trading with people ferociously to get off more time at Thanksgiving when all of my family was here. So she was making up for all the, the time that she was off at the end of December. And so she was, she was gone the weekend before Christmas and the weekend after Christmas, and she worked Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And um, when that happens, when, when she goes through periods of like, like them, they're rare, but when, when they happen, I find in myself this pattern that I, I kind of withdraw. I withdraw from my responsibilities as a husband. I have a hard time overcoming the inertia of the time that we spend apart. I get used to being by myself and used to not leading her well. And I, I falter in my uh, leadership to pray with her and encourage her because she's gone. The same thing can happen in a church. It can happen in your growth group. You're, you're gone for a while. This is a season of sickness, isn't it? Or the weather that keeps you away. Consistent gathering means that you work to overcome the inertia that settles in during difficult days. We, we work at it to overcome this inertia as Pyro student leaders to continue to encourage them in the midst of of life that, that pushes us apart. Or as Awana leaders or Sunday school teachers. Consistent gathering. Now, finally here, cross-congregational care. Number four, cross-congregational care. That's the focus of this last paragraph here. Uh, this is something I, I, that is already a part of our congregation. It's thrilling, but I want you to see it here in Antioch. Verse 27 says that some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, isn't that confusing? Down, they went north, but Luke uses the word down. And the reason he uses the word down is because Jerusalem is on a hill and everything is downhill from Jerusalem. So they go north, but they go down, which is actually up, right? Well, so uh, prophets come. We haven't talked about prophets a lot in the book of Acts. This is the first appearance that they've made in the book of Acts. We're going to spend time in a few weeks, Lord willing, when we get Agabus, the same prophet's going to show up again. We're going to spend some time talking about prophets and prophecy in the New Testament. I, uh, my wife asked me some questions after the fall women's Sunday school class. This is a small part of their study of First Thessalonians about the Bible and prophecy. We'll talk about that more in uh, a few weeks. Regardless here, the prophet Agabus comes down and he predicts that a famine is going to come. 
And Luke says that it happened during the reign of Claudius. And that's true. There were several years of bad harvests when Claudius was emperor. Um, and, and what the church does, the church responds, they take a collection for the brothers and sisters living in Judea and Jerusalem, and they send the money to them. Now, why, why did they single out this group that was in Jerusalem? Why did they do that? I have two suggestions. One of them is... Uh, it actually comes from John Stott. John Stott wonders if the church in Jerusalem was especially vulnerable to famine because of how they had handled their resources earlier in the book of Acts. Do you remember we read this in the book of Acts? What were they doing to support one another and help one another? They were selling off all of their possessions so that they could share it with one another. That might not be the best long-term strategy. Now, follow me here for just a minute as the New Testament story unfolds. The earliest believers thought that the Lord Jesus was going to return in their lifetime. They thought, maybe in, in Jerusalem, they thought he was going to come back in, in uh, just a couple of years or just a few months. Almost any time they thought that he was going to come back. Now, the New Testament, as the New Testament develops... Oh, what happens is we have this teaching emerge that Jesus could come back at any time, but he might not come back at any time. He could, but he might not. Now that changes how you live. If you knew for sure that Jesus was going to come back in six months, how would your life change? Well, stop saving for retirement, right? Don't save for retirement. Um, Don't. You need to drop out of school and uh, give yourself full time for uh, missions. Actually, we should stop saving money for the building expansion fund and give it all to missionaries and evangelists to send them to every corner of the earth if we knew for sure that Jesus was coming back in six months. But what if he doesn't come for a hundred more years? I hope that doesn't happen. That's a possibility, though. You better start saving for retirement. And you better stay in school and think about the next generation of followers of Jesus, the ones yet to be born, not the ones that are already alive here. There's different levels of planning and different levels of thinking. I wonder if the early believers in Jerusalem were were not thinking very well. Uh, They weren't thinking about the next hundred years, so they need support here. Maybe, also, there's another reason maybe why they picked Jerusalem and Judea. Maybe the brothers and sisters there were in particular suffering persecution. They, they, their Jewish parents, they become followers of Jesus, and their Jewish parents had kicked them out of their home, and they really didn't have any support at all. Regardless, this is cross-congregational care. Notice how this worked. The church in Jerusalem had sent them Barnabas, and the church in Antioch sends down to, to Jerusalem money and funds so that they can feed themselves. Churches caring for one another. This afternoon we're going to review Grace's Outreach Partners budget together. It goes to various ministries around the world, various things. Some of it, uh, this month our church is going to send $60. It's not a lot of money, but that's, that's what he requested. $60 is going to go to Carl Kasky, who serves a small church in Never Sink, New York, and they can't afford to pay him full-time, so we help supplement his income, and we, we care for that congregation in Never Sink. Uh, This month, $550 from our church is going to go to France. It's going to help a new congregation. It's called Le Rivage. They need pastoral help, and Stephen, Donna Niles, and Fred and Joanna Defoe are working there, and we care about that church, and we're giving them uh, this money. 
Some of our money is going to go to Africa. David Harrop is in a church in a country that is difficult to get into, but he's there on staff at an international congregation, and, and we're helping pay his salary so that he can be there. $425 is going to go to Bob and Lydia Johns. They, they live in Buenos Aires, and on Sundays they go out. They do training during the week, but on Sundays they go visit small churches that have pastors, bivocational pastors, and they encourage them and, and, and help them and counsel them and, and train them. Cross-congregational care. I read that budget and I think to myself, wow, this is excellent. Look what God is doing. He's making us like Antioch. We send money to other churches all over the world. Look at the grace of God. Let's rejoice at the grace of God. A few years ago, I was sitting somewhere and I was stuck unexpectedly. I'm not sure where I was. I can't remember. It was maybe a mechanic's uh, waiting room or a doctor's office. I don't don't really remember. And I, I didn't have anything with me to read. I've learned since then. I didn't have anything with me, so there was a television on, and I, I was, it was playing some reality television show. It was focusing on the life of, of a young mother uh, who lived in Manhattan, and the focus of the, the show was on her privilege and how, how, uh, special her, how much money her life was and how easy her life was. This was the focus of it. She was a young, attractive woman. She got up in the morning. She um, uh, sent her children off to school, and she sent her husband off to work. And then uh, she went to the gym, and she did her morning Pilates. And after she did her morning Pilates, she showered for the day and got dressed. And then she sat down in the gym uh, at a chair where a stylist was there to do her hair. Now, I don't go to a lot of gyms, which should be obvious, but I was surprised to see this. I was surprised. Um, I've never been to a gym that has a stylist on staff there to do your hair. Uh, she didn't even cut her hair. That was not the point. She's not there to get her hair cut. She just needed it combed, blow-dried and combed and s- slicked and put into place. Slicked, not slicked. It wasn't that long ago. Uh, do I have a lot of experience talking about hair? Okay, let's be honest. I was watching this television show, and, and I... It struck me as odd. I don't know why. I suppose, I suppose when, when you see someone who is wealthy and attractive and fashionable, you think, that person ought to be able to put themselves together. They ought not to need somebody to style their hair, right? They should be, should be competent. Apparently not. Should the men and women of, of Antioch been able to pull themselves together as a church? Probably not. But that's not what Luke wants us to see here. He wants us to see, look what... God can do. And our prayer is, oh Lord, do it here in us. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we are thankful to you for this fine passage of Scripture that talks about this uh, church, this congregation, and its soundness, its vitality. And we recognize it's with joy that we see that it's vitality that you cultivated in them by your spirit, by your hand being among them. And, oh, Lord, would would you do that work in us too? We pray this together because we want these things that are true of this church to be true here in our own congregation. I thank you for evidences of grace like this that are already here. We have... We have people who are 
encouraging and we have this uh, role that we play in caring for other congregations. Would, would you continue to do this work and make it more and more true? You, you can do it here in us despite our failures and our shortcomings and our history and our weaknesses. We thank you that your power is not limited by our uh, weakness. Our, uh, your strength is not limited by our uh, mistakes and errors and sins. You are a great God. Do good work in us. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.